WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. A constitutional amendment to jail more people without bail, controversy over a National Guard bill, plus a statewide energy plan, and more. From the television studios at WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review for the week ending January 27th, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, Indiana Senate Republicans voted to change the state constitution to allow judges to withhold bail entirely for a lot more people. The current Constitution requires judges to offer bail except when a person is charged with murder or treason. A proposed constitutional amendment would expand that to allow bail to be withheld for any crime as long as the person is a substantial risk to the public. Courtney Curtis represents Indiana prosecutors. She says judges should have the freedom to make individual decisions about individual defendants. If you limit it to a certain number of crimes, then you run the risk of not including folks that you'd want to include and including some folks that you'd rather not. Indiana Public Defender Council's Bernice Corley says the proposed expansion would widen existing disparities in the system. She says many people who can't afford an attorney don't have a lawyer at their initial hearing. Frightening to think of what Erica said. There is no nexus between charge level and losing your freedom. Even if the legislature approves the amendment this year, lawmakers will have to prove it again in 2025 or 2026 before it goes on the ballot for voters to approve. Is this a good change to the Indiana Constitution? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, editor-in-chief of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. And Delaney, should we give judges more flexibility in withholding bail? Judges have all the flexibility they need right now. I mean, they can look at the seriousness of the offense, the likelihood of fleeing, all of those issues, and they can set the bail wherever they want. They don't need any more. This is one of these bills that Republicans periodically come up with to show that they're really tough on crime. And, you know, we, we're going to spend a lot of money on, on a constitutional amendment that really doesn't do anything that judges can't do already. So, no, it's not a good idea. So if it do, but if it doesn't do anything, then what's the harm in changing the Constitution? <laughs> it's a pretty, oh, right. That's, it's a, it's what a, a pretty, great idea. I, you know, we're all in favor of gardening. Let's put that in the Constitution. It doesn't do any harm. I mean, we almost did. We did the hunt to, uh, right to hunt. Hopefully we'll get the tenderloins. But back to bail. <laughs> yeah. um, one, it's a pretty blunt standard that bail is optional except for murder and treason. Which takes doesn't really take into the Courtney Curtis's point is right. If you just start listing the alternative is you start listing out violent crimes. I'm a serial rapist. Okay, well now that's on the list. Okay, well this thing happened in Carroll County. This thing happened in Allen County. What about that? Well, let's go back and amend the statute. And we'll add those crimes because we let somebody out and they went and raped or murdered somebody else and escalated the crime. So, given changing the standard from this kind of blunt instrument to judicial flexibility that allows them to take into account the criteria, of the case at the local level in conjunction with prosecutors. Um, I think it's the right direction to go. John, yeah, there's some synergy here. You talked about this on this week's episode of Indiana Lawmakers. See, I got it in the head you of you. You plugged it before me. So, that doesn't preclude a plug for me as well. But 
that we are far from the only state that would have this if it if it uh, if we do change the constitution so again is there a lot of harm in giving judges flexibility some states you're right are moving this direction but other states have actually gone the opposite way you look at for instance uh, new jersey which a few years ago on as a state really tried to get rid of of cash bail and in, in almost all circumstances if you have a violent offense you're you're held for maybe 48 hours, but short of that, you get a summons. And early data, and perhaps it's too early to say how it's working, uh, you, these things unfold over time, but suggestion is that people are still appearing uh, in court at roughly the same rate. Meanwhile, the jail populations have gone down 35%, which is a good news for folks. And other states, New Mexico and a few others, have done this as well. And actually, even Indiana, if you look at Criminal Rule 26, which after four years of study and pilot programs, the Indiana Supreme Court issued uh, this order in 2020, I believe, which, again, was designed to sort of add some structure and encouragement to make sure that those who uh, are, uh, aren't a threat or a flight risk are not held unnecessarily. And to a certain extent, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a counter, certainly to a few high-profile instances that get a lot of attention when they occur. Sadly, they do occur from time to time, or if it's Rule 26 or, or all of the above, um, the sort of the notion of get tough on crime. But, you know, to the extent that this is, is derailed, if you're an opponent, it has to happen in the General Assembly. By the time this gets on a ballot, the way these things are worded in other states, they essentially say, do you think judges should keep bad people who are dangerous behind bars? Yeah, and I'm being well, only somewhat uh, uh, hyperbolic. And I don't think the public is going to uh, think that that's not, not a necessarily good no. idea. The, the idea, though, of we see states across the country moving away from bail because increasingly it becomes an issue of, well, if you're rich, you don't have to stay in prison, and if you're not, you don't. You do. Even if Indiana wanted to move that direction, this amendment wouldn't preclude them from doing it. It doesn't say you have to offer bail. It just says you can't withhold bail for a longer list of, re or, you know, pretty much any crime as long as they are a substantial risk to the public. But some Republicans voted against this on the floor. And I want to talk about Sue Glick's part of it, which is if there's a chance that this is derailed, is it from the perspective of how do you define substantial risk to the public? Yeah, yeah and, and that was her point, was that it was very vague. And that as a citizen, and I think this is even in the Constitution, like you're supposed to be able to tell from a law or a constitutional mm -hmm. amendment what that means for you. And this is so subjective to each judge that you wouldn't really know if you would be able to get bail for X, you know. Um, so that's the confusion about vagueness there. And uh, it doesn't sound like, though, they're really interested in, in clearing that up. I mean, what I found ironic was a statement by several Republicans saying, well, that's what the courts are for. They'll, they'll interpret it, which is not what you generally hear on other items. Yeah. You know, Ronnie yeah. Pohl pointed out on Lawmakers This Week, I won't go into the full plug since you already did it kindly. But he pointed out, he's one of the people who voted against it, Senator from Chesterton. He said, you know, what about associations? You could say, well, this person might pose a risk because is a known member of X gang or Y gang. Now, he said affiliation, he used the example of NRA membership or gun ownership, which sort of turns that argument on its head uh, and, and strikes at the notion of an affiliation that Republicans might see as less sinister, but the public might see uh, as with that, an individual get the, get with, with right, enthusiasm right about guns. So, so that's, he raises an interesting question, one that I think... But you, uh, you also have to consider that we do still have the presumption of innocence, okay? And, and you have 
crimes that people can be accused of that are heinous, and judges stand for election too. And if they, you know, if they have the right to deny bail, you know, they're going to have some political pressure on them too. And then you've got to at least consider the possibility <laughs> that people who are arrested are not guilty. And if you hold them for that period of time, they don't get those days back in their lives. That's a limited the, government argument, right? That's, a, that's the kind of a little bit of the conflict And here, we right? saw some Republicans mm -hmm. vote against this for those exact reasons, which is, whoa, we're depriving people of, of liberty without defining what substantial risk means, right. without, you know, you don't have to prove your case the way you do, you know, to convict someone. You do, though, it does require, correct me if I'm wrong, a higher, it's not just, oh, maybe they did it, it, there is a level of, of proof required at that hearing in order well, to withhold bail entirely you know, under the current system. You know, it, again, it just depends on, on what it is and how substantial it is and whether it's going to get into evidence or not. You know, I mean, there are lots of questions on that that can't be resolved. And I'm not sure every defend or every suspect uh, has legal representation well, at that. No, that that's some some counties, right. I think, do afford that opportunity, and but others, you're, you're essentially they there just don't have the resources, by yourself. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week, we pose an unscientific online poll question, and this week's question is, should Indiana change its constitution to allow more people to be held without bail? A, yes, or B, no. Last week, we asked you who you thought should be the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in 2024. 7% say Jim Banks, 58% say former Governor Mitch Daniels, 35% say someone else. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Indiana House lawmakers overwhelmingly voted to pass a bill this week that would make it easier to court-martial and punish National Guard troops. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Adam Yehea Reyes reports debate over whether part of the bill violates service members' due process rights will likely follow it in the Senate. Many opposing this bill agree with part of it. Some lawmakers and groups, like the American Legion Indiana chapter, have issues with the provision taking away troops' right to request a court-martial instead of dealing with administrative punishments for lower-level offenses. Lisa Wilkin is vice president of the Indiana Veterans Support Council Board. Taking the ability to demand a court-martial away gives commanders unfettered ability to give out administrative punishment that can be appealed, but that's after the fact. The bill's author, Representative Chris Jeter, argues the administrative system is chock full of due process. You have the right to consult with a lawyer, have witnesses, have someone in your unit speak for you, appeal the judgment. A lot more, I think, than any other employer probably would, would give. Jeter also notes the bill would prohibit confinement as an option for these administrative punishments. Michael Bryan, beyond just this bill, there's been issues of controversy over the last few years over some military and veterans' bills with the major veterans' groups in the state even fracturing over them. We saw that fracture first happen, I think, a year or two ago, and now it's happened again with the American <coughs> Legion splitting from what they call the big four veterans' groups. Is this a troubling trend at the State House? I think it's a consistent theme. I think, I think we have the large veterans' organizations, and then we have ancillary groups that some peel off for a single issue, cannabis or health care, some health, access to health care or other issues. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily like troubling or, or, or a trend. I mean, I, I didn't serve in the National Guard. The author 
of this bill, served in the Navy as a, and as a Naval Reserve JAG officer, uh, authored the bill, and his co-authors are two National Guard veterans. So I got, and, and this, bring, this bill brings us in line to what other state National Guards are, are how they're handling this as, as an administrative matter, where appropriate, in a court-martial, where, where, where else they think it's appropriate. This, I, I've never served in the military, my dad did, um, but I don't understand why you would bar this from happening, I guess. I guess that's my, it's, why make this change in legislation? Why, well, why, why bar them from, from requesting a court-martial for low-level offenses? I, be, I guess be, that's what I struggle okay. with, is why, why do this at all? In the military, like any uh, organization <clears throat> like this, you, you, have a, you have a tension between due process and efficiency, all right? And you, you can't have a court-martial if somebody's convened or somebody's required to stay in their barracks for the weekend, okay? So some of these lower-level that don't involve incarceration at all have to be sand, have to be handled by the chain of command. There's still an appeals process if you've got an abusive commander, which can happen. But basically, these low-level offenses should be handled internally, and you've got to have discipline. I mean, I always, when people talk about military justice, I'm not sure that's not an oxymoron. You know, you've, you've got, you've, with the chain of command, you, you surrender certain rights when you're in the military. I don't mean they can lock you up indefinitely or anything else, but you're a subject to orders from a superior officer, and you've got to follow them, and they've got to have that chain of command for discipline. So it makes perfect sense to do that. The the change to have somebody besides the governor have to convene a court-martial should have been done a long time ago. Yeah, I was going to say, there is more to this specific bill, too, when it comes to court-martials. And we heard some stuff in, there's a a Senate version of this bill, too, where court-martials don't seem to be happening at the National Guard. Yeah, yeah, apparently the governor hasn't called one in years and years and years. And what wasn't made clear in the hearing is why not. I mean, they admitted they had had at least four sexual assault cases that should have gone through a court-martial instead of this administrative process. But they never explained, like, are they asking the governor to call a court-martial and he's not. Like, I, I'm not sure where the breakdown is occurring, and that part was not clear at all. Going back to my original question, John, this is not the first time we've seen veterans groups making a lot of noise at the State House um, over something, they, they, a bill they don't like. But, as, as Mike also pointed out, it does seem to be the smaller, as he put it, ancillary groups. So, are some of these controversies that have popped up much ado about nothing? I don't know the issue well enough to say that they're much ado about nothing. Uh, I think it's not surprising, perhaps, that you do see differences of opinion within groups because, yes, there is the commonality that people take an oath and they wear a uniform and serve our nation and protect us from from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, but they are, it's a large group that's not monolithic. And you look at age group, you know, you have a lot of times people who were and my father, a World War II veteran, uh, who maybe view things differently from somebody who either didn't serve in combat or was a Vietnam, was a Vietnam veteran. I mean, and again, age is not the only uh, no, but delineation. I mean, but I think, but, you know, uh, I think you increasingly see a lot of difference between the way veterans were treated after they came home from Vietnam Absolutely. versus the way they came home from the Gulf Certainly. War or, Certainly. or and I, and I think I think we learned as a nation some lessons collectively about how not to treat veterans. Uh, who were who were doing fulfilling their obligation to serve their nation, 
maybe in an unpopular war, but it shouldn't be taken out on right. them. So I'm not surprised that there are differences. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure people who have a much better handle on this view this as a necessity, and maybe for reasons that Anne suggests there is some efficiency uh, value to this. Four years ago, Indiana formed a task force to come up with a statewide energy plan as the country transitions to more renewable energy and new technologies. Now, a state house bill aims to do just that. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Rebecca Thiel reports it passed unanimously out of committee this week. The bill cuts the amount of power utilities can buy from the grid during peak demand in half. That means they'd have to show they can generate about 85 percent of their energy themselves or from contracts with other companies. The bill's author, Republican Representative Ed Soliday, says grid operators are concerned the U.S. could face more rolling blackouts as utilities rely more on the grid. They said everyone is buying and no one is selling. The Indiana Energy Association says utilities generate or contract out most of their power anyway, and that the bill wouldn't change their plans to transition to more renewable energy. The bill also says the state agency that oversees utilities has to consider five things in most of its decisions. Reliability, affordability, resiliency, stability, and environmental sustainability. John Schwanis, at long last, is this a statewide energy plan that puts Indiana on a good path? No. <laughs> oh, no, it was a remarkable bit of uh, ventriloquism. Yes, yeah. I look. I think it, it it's a sound policy, and we've studied this as a state for a long time. Several sessions, the task force, the group uh, has looked at various aspects of of this, and no one can really argue. I don't think, and this is why we saw it come out uh, on a unanimous vote from committee, that if you look at any of those five. Uh, criteria, there's not a bad one in there. We want to have reliable energy. We want it to be They're affordable. Redundant. But the, the fact of the matter is it's probably, if there's a flaw, and, and, uh, and maybe there won't be. Maybe these, this is aspirational and we can all, as a state, move toward this goal. But, I mean, these are terms that are subject to different interpretations, much as we talked about with risk to the public in our first topic today. What is affordability? In fact, we saw the Citizens Action Coalition in committee saying, well, we need to define further. What does that mean? Is it 6% of of gross pay, which is, I guess, a standard often used for excessive utility payments? Is it Because you could say uh, reliability to one person is not to another. Now, there is some tangible, there is a number in here, about 85%. Uh, that utilities would have to either generate themselves or have uh, Contract contracts for. Yeah. In other words, they'd be able to summon that energy at a moment's notice. Yeah. And that's something Assuming that Ed Soliday, who's been down. a driver in this, has been very important to him about reliability, yeah. having seen what's happened with brownouts yeah, in Texas. Not relying and on the grid. For, exactly. For exactly. And that's, that was my question to you, which is, is this going to do that much in terms of the future? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they've they've made a start on this plan and and they're going for sort of overarching goals and I think yeah it passed unanimously because it's not that specific right but you know I can see where a lot of people are going to want more specifics and you know it doesn't go far enough and I think that will be the fight for the rest of the session. Yeah I'm I'm, I'm, as they say old enough to remember when uh, uh, Mike Pence promised this in his 2012 campaign and Eric Holcomb promised it in his 2016 campaign and now we finally got or we're looks like we're going to get um, after a four-year study. After a four-year study is this enough? No, it's not enough. And, you know, it really is, it, it really is, I think, designed to make sure that our reliance on fossil fuels continues. Because what they've done is they appear to be doing something 
towards sustainability and alternative sources of energy, but they're not really doing anything. And in fact, at that one bill that was there to allow people to buy into, um, uh, in, in, into regenerated uh, electricity gets voted down. So this is their attempt to protect big, big utilities and fossil fuels and still put a little fig leaf to say we're really trying to do something about this, but we don't want to do very much. When we think about our energy future as a state, is this a little too broad? Do we need a little more specificity to, to some of this? I think what's interesting over this four-year process is how the market's changed and, and gone towards renewable energy, yeah. where you know the, the high-profile, like most controversial proposals that have been considered in the General Assembly early in this process were overt protections of fossil fuels, where you know the large energy companies were coming back and going, "Hang on, we're converting right. to natural gas. We're converting to solar." We do still have work to do on how you open the door to develop those renewable projects. We don't have statewide standards. You know, a, a local BZA or a county council can block a large-scale, you know, renewable uh, project. Or, we, or small scale ones, too. Yeah, or small scale ones. You're not allowed one, to you know, sell the, your excess the, the, to the grid. Yeah, you know, so there's so limitations on that. We don't, we don't have a Texas brownout network. That is a unique closed system that we don't have. We can go buy wholesale power if we need it. And we can, we can, but, and the, you know, tension's the right word between moving too fast into renewable energy and having a reliable source of energy has always been the, the standard, even as the markets change. It's like the four-quarter offense. We'll slow it down as long as we can. The market's going to move a faster than a rare legislature. Sports you want a shot clock is what lady. you want, Anne. Yeah. I do. <laughs> <laughs> the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus says its focus in 2023 is closing the achievement gap, helping reduce inequities in education, housing, and health care. One of the IBLC's bills, a longtime priority, is also on the governor's agenda this year automatically enrolling students in the state's 21st century scholars program. The program provides full tuition to Indiana colleges and universities for middle and low income students. But IBLC chair Earl Harris says the problem is you have to enroll in seventh or eighth grade. A lot of times the parent doesn't know about it, the child doesn't know about it, and by the time we have the conversation it's too late. Harris says while the caucus helps represent black Hoosiers, their agenda isn't meant to serve only one group. Teacher support, financial support, public health, all of this helps everyone. doesn't matter if you're black, white, Latino, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian. Other caucus priorities include scholarships for black and Hispanic students pursuing health care careers and ending discrimination in housing appraisals. Nikki Kelly, why has automatic enrollment in 21st century scholars been such a hard sell for Republicans for so long? And, and to be honest, I don't think I've heard it as much as I have all of a sudden. I mean, I don't, this isn't well, one Well, when the governor puts it on his agenda, that's certainly... Well, right. But I mean, it wasn't like they've been trying to do this for 10 years and they've been blocking it again and again and again. I think it's sort of a new try at it. Um, and while they're at it, they should also look at, like, what's magical about seventh grade that you have to sign on? Like, why can't you sign up in ninth grade? Yeah. You know, I, there's lots of ways they could do that. But obviously, if more kids sign up then you're paying for their college. And so that has a, a financial tag there at the end, too. I, I will say this, you know, in terms of that, it, it, it's hard to say, well, here's going to be the f financial impact because if when you're enrolling kids in seventh and eighth grade, you have no idea how many kids are going to need to take advantage of this. It's possible that some kids will, will uh, you know, go out of the eligibility guidelines. Because or they'll, move out you know, of state. Or move or out of state or decide not to go to college school. at all. And so it's hard to come up with a, this is how much this bill is going to cost. Is that maybe some of the, 
the reason that it's, I think it's been mostly an amendment the last few yeah. years from Democrats? I'm sure the lack of certainty is troubling to some people. But as a state, couldn't we agree that if there's anything we could put our money in, it's, it's ensuring a quality education for people who want to get that education and then become a contributing member in some fashion of society. I would think that even if, in the unlikely event that 100% of people maintain their eligibility by staying away from you know, drugs and, and their grades stayed high, we should celebrate it, even if it means dipping into some other fund that we hadn't anticipated. And in terms of return on investment, which is possible, or which is popular, this program, the students who, who use this program do really, really, really well. well, right? Yeah, there's worse problems to have than 100% of low-income kids who meet the criteria <laughs> get automatically enrolled in the 21st Century yeah. Scholar yeah, yeah, <laughs> program. Yeah, exactly. It, it, Is this it, the year for it, finally? I, I think so. And by the way, it's the, as I said, the Evan Bay 21st Century Scholars Program. It was a great idea initially, and there's no reason not to expand it. We, the goals of the last several Republican uh, governors have been to increase the number of college graduates, and we're going the wrong way. This would be one thing that could help Maybe it's about political strategy, though. If, if the supporters of this went with, say, expanding vouchers from K through 12 to K through 16, you might be on to something. That's probably right, yes. <laughs> Although the voucher program or the charter school program does not have the success rate of the 21st Century Scholars Program, no, I would I'm, point I'm out. I'm being facetious. Well, I, I know, recognize the, 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 There's been a larger discussion about college going and, and post-secondary uh, attainment, and I think, again, that might this be falls why this is... falls mandatory FAFSA, you know, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. mandatory sign-up for fa financial aid for kids yeah. and yeah. Sure. shine yeah. more light on the options. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think we're we're closer to it than we've ever been before, and I think this might be, good. be... Yeah, this might be the, the one that finally gets it over the hill, um, but we'll see because... Especially given that... Everything's we, always in the... It, it, ultimately, it's up to really the budget well, than anything else, and... Well, we talk so much about workforce and, and the economy, and do we have, com when we're looking, uh, you know, strutting our stuff for companies right. that might want to move here, they, they often say, you know, what does your workforce look like? And to be able to say, here we have a program that has proven incredibly successful, that would seem and to me to be a, it even further. quite yeah. a selling point. Yeah. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash iwir or on the PBS video app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.